0: So this evening um, was just uh, thinking about um, some different ways in which we can view this practice that we're doing. And I really enjoyed um, what Jenny said the other day about seeing the practice of Anapanasati as doing, involving essentially three things. The um, development of calm the development of insight and the development of loving-kindness. So that's one way we can look at it. Uh, another way that we can look at it is actually um, the way that it's presented in the sutta that I was talking about the other evening. It carries on after the, the teaching on the uh, 16 steps. And the Buddha goes on to say that when we practice this, we actually bring to full fruition the practice of mindfulness itself, which he describes as developing these four establishments or foundations of mindfulness that we've also been referring to. And he says that as we do that, we're thoroughly developing and bringing to fruition the essential qualities of the awakened mind. Which some of you might be familiar with is another list of things called the awakening factors. And I will talk about them later, but it's not essential to remember them or to absorb another list if that's unfamiliar to you. But just this idea that we're, we're using this to ripen certain essential qualities of mind that are the properties in a, of an awake mind and in the presence of which the mind is able to uh, attain a a level of liberating understanding to to free itself through wisdom. And uh, Anali Obhikkhu, who's one of the leading scholars of the ancient texts at the moment, has done a lot of work comparing these Pali texts with the early Chinese sources by which we can kind of get a sense of What's likely to be the most authentic and most original um, version of these things? He he's really um, of the opinion that this is the purpose of Anapanasati, to develop these these awakening factors. So <clears throat> that actually nicely fits in with another v- way of viewing what we're doing, or it's kind of congruent with another way of viewing what we're doing, which is the idea of meditation as cultivation and you probably have heard us use this word multiple times already and I just want to digress a little around that. So the, the word for, that's often used for meditation um, is the word bhavana which means bringing something into being and this is what we, we translate as, as cultivation. So it's about bringing into being all the qualities that really lead to our optimal flourishing as human beings. And you can you can kind of argue about well, what constitutes awakening, what does enlightenment mean, but just anyway, these are the, the most beneficial things that we can be cultivating in our mind. And I just want to, to kind of play with this image of cultivating and gardening for a moment because I th- I think there's some quite helpful uh, analogies within that. So one of the things to recognise, which I also mentioned this morning, is that in doing this work, we're really dealing with processes in nature. That And we kind of have to do that with a, a sense of respectfulness like there's many many elements to the work that we're doing that aren't in our control and most of our tasks or a lot of our tasks the task of mindfulness is a lot about patient steady observation and just creating supportive conditions and planting seeds and that this practice will, will unfold in its own time there's also another Uh, kind of analogy there in the sense of that we have a retreat structure and a routine just like the garden has flower beds and walls and greenhouses and stakes and maybe nets over certain things. I haven't been into the Veggie Garden yet on this visit but I hope that all of you have had a chance to wander in the garden. So, you know, in order to thrive, a garden needs some kind of boundaries. And on the retreat, we create them by the, the kind of containers, the parameters of the retreat and the schedule and the routine and so on. And in an ordinary life, we also need certain, certain boundaries. So one of those is the um, commitment to live in, a, in an ethical way that minimizes the problems in our life. And then we need soil for this work, and the soil is all the different life experiences and mental habits that we bring here. And this is useful to remember when we kind of don't like some of the stuff that shows up. You know, um, there's the saying, no mud, no lotus, or as Tignahan likes to say, it's this little compost for what we're doing. So whatever comes up here, it's all grist for the mill, it can all be turned uh, into into good use mindfulness is like the water with which we water the plants and we need to also have discernment to see what we're going to water and what we're going to leave alone or rather we apply mindfulness to everything and in doing so we're actually watering certain things and leaving certain things uh, to um, (coughs) to To diminish, to, to die away. And then, two other bits of proliferation around this. I think the other essential ingredient, another essential ingredient that Jenny mentioned, is also the aspect of kindness. So, actually, just as the garden needs sun to, sh- to, to grow and to, to thrive, uh, this practice can't thrive in the absence of kindness. And then one more thing I wanted to to put in there is the idea of air, because we're working with the breath and uh, being mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath. And we're going to be contemplating the territory of impermanence tomorrow, but just this sense that these processes are moving and changing, and that's actually to our advantage because there's a possibility of change, there's a possibility of transformation in in every moment, and it's because things are changing that actually um, we can we can grow, we can develop, um, habits can be transformed, and so on. And it also means that we don't have to get so bogged down, or to take so personally, or feel so uh, stuck in in the difficult mind states that come up, or to to feel kind of um, maybe shy about acknowledging. The good ones that do. So I said this morning you know we can have a moment of a moment of aversion, a moment of anger we can also have a moment of wisdom, a moment of clarity, we can have moments of mindfulness and moments of heedfulness. and they all become a little a little bit less intimidating and less less of a problem if, if we can allow them to be moments that come and go. So as we do this practice, we're really working with natural processes that are impersonal and we can approach, approach it rather in the way that a gardener might approach the garden or a, a naturalist might or a botanist might, might approach uh, the plant world. So There's a kind of interest, but also, you know, I think David Attenborough hopefully doesn't get too involved in every every drama that unfolds in front of of the camera on a nature documentary, you kind of accept that nature has to take its course and we can be interested and we can care, but we don't get personally invested in every little um, unfolding of things. So we're always, you know, one of the things about this cultivation uh, metaphor is that we're always cultivating something. And this is really important to, to recognise because everything that we do conditions something else. So if we just think, oh, I'm just, you know, this is all a bit hard work, I'm just going to disengage from my mindfulness practice, not have anything to do with it, unfortunately... There's no escape because the mind is then just going to be cultivating its, its old habits. Uh, if, we, if we run on habit, we run on our automatic pilot, we're just reinforcing the grooves in our mind. Yeah. And some of those grooves we probably would acknowledge are not very helpful. So the, even the, this, is, this is kind of well um, documented in contemporary neuroscience, but it's something that the Buddha also understood. And he said, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders, that becomes their inclina- the inclination of their mind. So that's why we choose the discipline of a retreat and why we pick up a particular meditation practice like Anapanasati because it enables us to learn about and to challenge the habits of our mind. So one thing I really like that uh, the American teacher Gil Fronstell said is that mindfulness of breathing works even when it doesn't work. Yeah. So even when it feels like we're not making any progress with it at all and that the concentration and karma completely eluding us, you know, every single time that we, we notice that we've kind of lost it, every time we re- remember present moment awareness, every time we manifest one moment of kindness or non-judgment or of curiosity or discernment, these properties of mindfulness, we're building those qualities in our mind. We're also building, just by showing up and putting our bottom on our seat, we're building patience and persistence. And then we're also getting to see, to learn about the habits of mind that interfere. So maybe our habits of obsessive planning or worrying or the way that the mind is endlessly seeking and craving different kinds of entertainment and the way that the mind is kind of uh, reactive is reactive to the different um, feeling tones of our of a sensory input pleasant and unpleasant that uh, we were talking about yesterday. So it's really good with all this going on if we can maintain our sense of humour and have been very uh, encouraged by the sense of humour that's been apparent in Get some of the groups that I've met with, and the ability to see the quirks of one's mind with a with a sense of humour. So it's useful in in all this to kind of get clear about what what are the weeds and what are the the plants or the veggies that we want to grow. What do we want to feed and water, and what don't we? And this is part of the, is today's interest in looking at the mind and states of mind so to look again at you know what sort of states of mind do we want to feed and what do we not want to feed I really liked uh, Jenny's meditation this afternoon the invitation to begin rather than begin at the beginning in a sense to begin by looking at the state of mind and to carry that with us through all the different contemplations that we were doing, and I think in some ways that's actually a, a, a necessary, essential place to start, because it's very easy with this pra- with any practice, but actually this practice of mindfulness of breathing, particularly, because it's it's something that is so tempting to see in a kind of success failure goal orientation way, it's easy to pick it up with mixed motives, and really we need to have an awareness of what's driving it. As a a Burmese teacher, some of you may know, called Sayadaw Lutajaniya, and he says that if we're not aware of the condition of the mind in this moment, then we're not, and we're not aware of the condition of the mind that's practicing, then that what's, what's happening is that the defilements, or the, which is the, the, these afflictive mind states that I talked about this morning, are meditating through us. So it's like your, your aversion or your wanting has kind of hijacked your mind and is reinforcing itself through your meditation practice. So these, these root afflictions of... of uh, which we traditionally call in greed and hatred and delusion the sense of wanting something uh, particularly wanting some kind of sensory experience um, aversion, wanting something to stop or go away a delusion, kind of not being clear about what's really for our benefit and sati- lasting benefit and satisfaction and what isn't can be sort of meditating through us so, if I'm meditating wanting to get some particular state that I had in my last sitting, or that I had last on my last retreat, or that I think I should have from my own ideals or from some reading I've done, or if I'm meditating just lost in a fantasy about some future pleasant experience I might have, then... Actually, um, it's not it's not wisdom that's meditating. It's not mindfulness that's meditating. It's craving, uh, craving that's meditating through us. That's different from just having an aspiration to practice or to learn. It's when that's really kind of hijacked by an unseen agenda there. Or if I'm meditating, wanting something to stop or go away, so. Been hearing different people's reflections on various sound, sound, uh, I want to say disturbances because that's ladling a value judgment onto them, to various sound impressions that have been arising. And just this sense of, well, when the crows finally stop cawing, then I will be able to meditate. When the cows stop mooing, or, you know, when, when people around me stop fidgeting, then. Or when I can stop fidgeting, or when my shoulder stops aching, you know, and and the whole the mind is coloured by this wanting wanting to get rid of something unpleasant that's happening, and and as we sit with that without seeing it, we're just um, reinforcing that particular groove, that habit of wanting in the mind of wanting and not wanting. And when we're we're doing this, when we're waiting and wanting, what does that feel like? You know, there's a kind of tightness and we can, if we catch it, we notice there's a kind of tightness or tensing in the body. There's not a sense of ease and relaxation. And there's this kind of fundamental belief running that this moment isn't good enough. And with all that present, how can the mind possibly settle down and clarify itself? So, also the value of kind of acknowledging this at the beginning is reflected in lots of other places in the in the um, texts that t- talk about meditation practice that actually begin with rather than in, in this particular sutta. And I remember, I said it was it was the teaching was delivered at a time when people had been meditating, practicing together for a long time. They were all kind of quiet and peaceful already when it happened. Uh, and so it launches us straight into this awareness of the breath. But in lots of other places where meditation practice is described, you go and sit down at the root of your tree and the first thing you do is you check your mind for the presence or absence of the, the five hindrances, these, um, these uh, obstructive mental states that um, Jenny named yesterday for the first time when we were talking about reactivity under um, noticing mental activity and mental reactivity and then I, I alluded to them again this morning in that checking checking the state of mind. And they're really just cocktails of the, the three root problems of greed hatred and delusion. And they're called hindrances. The, the word actually means um, the, uh, Nivarana means occluding factors or, or veiling factors things that stop us from seeing clearly. They stop the mind from settling, um, finding ease, and they stop it from seeing clearly. It's said that when the mind is beset by the hindrances, one can't see what's for one's own benefit or for the benefit of another. So whether we whether we look out for them before we start the meditation, whether we make it that a part of our practice of the second set of, the, the second of the groups of four, or whether it's arising for us as we contemplate the, the mind in the third group, it doesn't really matter because the reality is that it's, this is part of the practice, is to be checking over and over again for the presence and absence of, beneficial or unhelpful states of mind so these, these hindrances are uh, illustrated by some similes which are quite useful and, and helpful for remembering them I think and the idea is that um, the mind would be the mind in its kind of un, unhindered state is like a bowl of clear water in which you can clearly see the reflection of your own face if you think about it, in ancient India, there probably weren't very many mirrors around. It was probably only the uh, super-rich who would have access to a mirror. So the, the only way that you could see a reflection would be in still, clear water. And so uh, the similes for the, the hindrances are about you know, what, what would prevent us from seeing with clarity in the water... So the first, the first hindrance is the hindrance of sensual desire, of wanting some pleasant experience to fulfill us. And this, the Buddha said, is like you've got this bowl of clear water, but it's actually filled with some kind of colored dye. And you can imagine how dye is very kind of seductive. It can look really nice and really appealing, but it also has a kind of false promise. You know, that's not, It's not really... Uh, going to give us the result that we want. We're not really going to be able to see ourselves in it. Aversion is like a bowl of water that's been heated up and is bubbling and boiling away. And that's, that's nice because you can really sense when you're kind of irritated by something or angry the, the kind of heat and the agitation in the body. It sort of feels like, it's like it can feel like we're, we're boiling and hissing and then the next pair, dullness and drowsiness, is the dullness and drowsiness, is, or the, ne- the next one, dullness and drowsiness, is like a bowl of water that's grown over with algae. So you actually, you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you can't see anything in it, and you know, the way the algae kind of grows and grows and grows and spreads out, and it's the same with the sense of sleepiness and dullness that just kind of creeps over, numbs down the mind. And restlessness and worry are like a wind, water that's been whipped up by waves and wind. And you know how? You know, but I find waves and windy, windy, windy kind of wave conditions very enervating. And the same way, the restless and worry is, is kind of restlessness and worry is agitating mm-hmm. and enervating. And then doubt is like. Um, the bowl of water is muddy and it's been placed in the dark. There's no possibility of really seeing clearly um, what, what needs to be done. So we can kind of have our radar out for, for these things and, and notice them. Because so often, as I said this morning, we kind of go out into what has to happen to fix it. We don't turn our attention back and see, well, actually, what's, what's the thing that's arising here in, in this mind? And the similes, I think, are good because they help us notice the, uh, the kind of afflictive nature of them. So when we see them, if we're trying to get rid of them, that's this tricky because we're often adding adding more aversion to them and so our, in, the invitation of this practice is to just investigate them with curiosity and as we do that as we kind of breathe with the experience of feeling restless or averse or really wanting something to satisfy us we actually re- begin to feel the inherent unsatisfactoriness of it You know, all of them have a, have a flavour in the body that's kind of suboptimal, if we're getting used to calming and inju- calming into sensing the body field um, um, developing a taste for calm and ease there then get a little less tolerant of the presence of these unsatisfactory experiences so we can both feel their unsatisfactoriness and we can reflect on it too and when the mind clearly sees that it will start to draw back from them so this is how mindfulness, you know in a sense, we don't have to do ex- extra things to the presence of helpful or unhelpful states. When they're seen with clarity, the mind is naturally going to invest in things that, that lead to happiness and d- divest from things that don't, if we're, we're present and not just driven by habit. And there are other things that we can do, like we can introduce uh, perhaps a different thought that will kind of take the mind on another track or at least kind of counter uh, any thought that's kind of connected with the hindrance. We can also choose not to proliferate around it, to withdraw our energy from the thinking process. So again, this skill that we've been developing of really grounding, returning again and again that energy, that interest to the body and the breath and even also just the choice not to act on things so we've all done this we've all at moments made this wise choice not to act on an impulse not to act on our restlessness and every time we feed that habit of not acting on an unhelpful impulse again you know the tendency towards it is diminished So we can begin our practice or at, at moments during our practice really um, be, be aware of, turn our awareness to the condition of the mind and the presence and absence of these hindrances. And what's interesting in terms of this cultivating qualities in the mind is that the moment that we do that, we're already cultivating the awakening factor of mindfulness. So mindfulness is the first of the awakening factors. So we don't have to be free of any kind of confusion or you know, any kind of irritation or wanting. We don't have to be free of those uh, all afflictive mind states before we can start growing the really beneficial ones. So just this, this capacity to be mindful of a state of aversion or a state of restlessness or state of wanting when it's present, already we're starting to tip the balance in the direction of um, really beneficial qualities of mind. And as we apply mindfulness, we also give rise to some interest and curiosity So these are very closely allied to mindfulness. When we start investigating something with a genuine sense of curiosity, and you may be tasting this for yourself in your practice, actually interest starts to develop and energy. So actually I I, I really noticed this this afternoon of a sense of feeling sleepy in the meditation after lunch and you know, like all of us, quite often my, my thing is oh, I, I need to wake up, I need to wake up <laughs> and, and for some reason this, this afternoon my mind just said oh yeah, this is, this, is, this, is, this is dullness and drowsiness and I didn't try to do anything with it but just that sense of oh yeah, this is dullness and drowsiness and suddenly you know, the mind was awake again so we don't necessarily have to do very much. We can just start to notice, and if there's a, a, some sense of curiosity and interest, then the energy arises. Uh, so these are these are the next two of the awakening factors: is um, investigation, dhammavicaya, investigation of phenomena, investigation particularly of of the the. Truth or the the truth of um, the way that the Buddha might have described experience. So testing out what's going on um, against uh, what the teachings tell us about it. But really, just a, an attitude of interest and curiosity, and that gives rise to the next one, which is energy, or it's the word is virya, which actually is kind of related to. Uh, the, the Latin word for hero, and so I like that because it makes me think of of courage. Yeah. So this, the, the willingness to stay present with our experience, especially with our difficult experience, requires a lot of courage and we were reflecting on that also in a group yesterday. Um, some of you have probably read Larry Rosenberg's book on mindfulness of breathing breath by breath, and he He talks about this practice as being um, converting our mind from being a doggy mind that kind of runs around everywhere, sniffing at everything, kind of trying to find uh, something tasty or interesting to eat, to a lion mind that kind of has the poise and dignity and purposefulness. Of, of a lion, and also uh, I think the courage of a lion. So I like to think of virya as actually being lion-heartedness, right, rather than just lion-mindedness. So there's this this uh, progress from from or through mindfulness to interest and curiosity to energy, or energy and courage. And then energy uh, can actually... Uh, is a, gives rise to the experience of joy. Or uh, kind of... So one we've been translating uh, as joy, this word pity in the suttas, which actually is a kind of... It's kind of some, often translated as rapture. And I think uh, the, the idea of kind of rapt interest in something kind of... Um, Illustrates the way that 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 that, um, that energy, interest, and energy can kind of segue into joy. So this is one way in which joy can arise. You know, when you get really interested in something, uh, it, it makes the mind happy, doesn't it? If we're if we're interested in just a kind of curious way, again, like you know somebody who's really passionate about astronomy will get really interested in the stars and not trying to sort them out or fix them. So it has to be free from that sense of, I've got, I'm going to fix this. But if there's just pure interest and curiosity, then it's energising and it's joyful. And joy can also rise arise in another way, from seeing the hindrances disappear or seeing afflictive mind states disappear. Or fall away or from knowing their absence. So we were talking about if the you know, you don't normally notice the absence of a toothache, but if you've had a had a toothache yesterday or you've you had something uh, happening yesterday that has now gone away, you actually do notice the pleasure in the absence of toothache. Uh, if we if we really concerned and interested in the presence or absence of hindrances then their disappearance becomes a cause for joy and there's another set of similes that I think is also really useful in illustrating this so in the case of of sense desire the Buddha likens that to um, somebody who's in debt and to me, that's quite interesting because when we when we're desiring something, it's like we've invested the idea of our happiness into something in the future. It's like we're not. Similarly, as, as, as if we're owing money, we're not, and we're not. We're going to be free of debt at some point in the future, and. With when we're kind of thinking that I need this thing to happen I need to get this thing in order to, order to be happy it's like we can't enjoy what we've actually got so he said that recognising the, the, the fading away or the absence of, of sense desire is being like a person who was in debt and has now paid it off and has money over to spare and can enjoy their prosperity in the present moment Aversion is like uh, being s- somebody who's sick, or, or uh, yeah, sick with a disease, and can't enjoy their food. You know, feels weak, uh, feels discomfort in the body. And again, you know, aversion—it really does have a, a very strong body signature for us. And so, uh, noticing the subsiding or the fading away of aversion is like. Risk regaining our health after a sickness and suddenly we're able to uh, feel comfortable enjoy our food and, uh, uh, and our strength returns so again there's this sense of relief and enjoyment dullness and drowsiness it says is like being in prison it's like, so there's this sense isn't there when we're, when we're kind of the mind is dull and, and we feel sleepy that we can't move yeah. so when you're free from prison you can you can move around freely and also there's you know one i think one of the things about prison is that you really have a sense of you can't see the outside world you're missing on the outside you're missing out on the outside world and you're missing what's happening and it's the same when we're asleep isn't it we kind of we miss everything that's going on and you kind of wake up and you think oh damn i missed that you know i missed all that So it's it, the, the joy of uh, emerging from dullness and drowsiness is like being let out of prison. Restlessness and worry, it's said, are like uh, being enslaved. So you're kind of running around doing others' bidding all the whole time. You, know, you don't have any freedom as to where you go. It's like you're being kind of battered around from he- here to there by somebody else's, <coughs> else's desires. And so when you, when you emerge from that, it's like suddenly you're free to make your own choice to do what you want. And then doubt, he says, is like crossing, crossing a desert, like being a, a person with lots of property who has to make a journey across, across the desert. You don't know whether you're going to get there safely and you're unable again to make any use Of the wealth that you have with you while you're crossing the desert, but once you've safely crossed the desert and your belongings are intact, you can enjoy uh, your wealth and your belongings in safety. So all those all those um, uh, fadings away of the hindrances, he says, uh, would would be accompanied by a sense of relief. And a person would be glad and full of joy. So you can see that, test that in your own experience. You know, what's it like to notice that uh, one of these states of mind was present and now it's diminished or it's, it's uh, disappeared? And we, again, we, we're so prone to this negativity bias that we tend to notice what's wrong. We don't notice it. The, these things in their absence it's really really um, valuable and important to notice the absence of these things as much as their presence and so there's an invitation that's encouraged sometimes when we sit down to meditate to just check for these things and to really notice what's what's not there and to take to take um, satisfaction in that and to help that be a basis for um, experiencing and cultivating joy. So joy is the is the fourth of the awakening factors. And then it's it's said that in one who feels joy, and you can again test this for yourself, the body and the mind become tranquil. So you can see an overlap you know, we don't you don't have to remember this list of awakening factors because they actually really overlap with what we're doing in contemplating these, uh, these tetrads so that from joy we come to a place of tranquility and one who feels joy the body and mind become tranquil so this this factor of ease or calm and then when the body is tranquil and the mind is content the mind becomes concentrated becomes collected, composed. So these things start to happen by themselves. It's said that the first of the first few of these factors, the mindfulness, investigation, energy, are kind of input factors. We can, we, They're things we can do, and the rest of them in a sense are kind of fruits of them. But they, they unfold naturally one from the other. So when the body is tranquil and the mind is content, the mind becomes concentrated steadied and a concentrated mind has uh, three properties this is from Ajahn Buddhadasa, that he says that the, the, the characteristics of a concentrated mind is, are its stability its purity or clarity, so just like this sense of the bowl of water in which things can be, be seen clearly and it's ready to be put to use and this is where we're going to go in the in the tetrad tomorrow. Is where um, the concentrated mind, or the steady mind, is used to uh, contemplate the way things are. It's used for the arising of liberating insight. And our steadiness, our stability, our concentration don't have to be perfect. You know, again and again, we're saying that this. This sutta is to be engaged with you know, over and over again at deepening levels of um, of practice or of, of engagement with it. But you know, it's a, to me, I, I like to see it as a kind of as, as a cyclical thing or a spiral thing that it's taking us. We're kind of in a feedback loop as we move through these steps, and we can we can go deeper and deeper. <coughs> So, even this sense of, oh, well, what's liberating insight? You know, I think that pe- many people have reported and, and have had moments of liberating insight. We don't have to wait for the big bang. Please notice the moments of liberating insight that you have uh, on the daily, on the day, or during your day here. When we're suddenly there's a, oh, suddenly I've seen something that I hadn't seen before, and there's a sense of relief. Or this thing that I was struggling with, oh, you know, I've seen that it's it's actually not a problem just now. So the concentrated mind, uh, this is the sixth of the seven awakening factors. The last one is equanimity, and the the, the concentrated mind or the composed mind can observe whatever's happening with or whatever it chooses to contemplate with equanimity. And it can also observe itself. It can start to understand itself. And this loops back for me again to this definition of mindfulness from Christina Feldman that I find really beautiful. It's actually, there's an inherent um, so again, you can think, oh, equanimity is the last of the awakening factors. It's, you know, but actually there's equanimity already being cultivated in our practice of mindfulness, in this willingness and capacity to be equally near to all events and experiences with kindness, curiosity and discernment. So, you know, wherever, at whatever point, where, at whichever point of entry, whatever circumstance in our life that we're starting to engage with this practice, we're growing these factors in the mind. And we're, as we grow these factors, we're taking away energy, we're counterbalancing, we're uprooting the uh, harmful obstructive tendencies in the mind. And what we begin to find as we do this is an increasing capacity to actually find refuge in awareness itself, in this sense of our capacity to know our experience. So I want to just end by reading you a poem on awareness, which I guess some of you might have come across before. But just referencing this, um, this ability of awareness to become uh, a place of, of freedom and uh, <coughs> of relief for us. So this is by John Astin. Awareness. A gaze is so constant, are every move watched with such affection? A ceaseless vigil without condition or agenda, silent, patient, unrelenting in her embrace. There is endless room in the heart of this lover infinite space for whatever foolishness we may toss her way. But she's also crafty, this one, a thief who will steal away everything we ever cherished, all our beliefs, all our ideas, all our philosophies, until nothing is left but her shimmering wakefulness, this simple love for what is. Let's just sit together for a moment.